The psalmist, under inspiration, of course, had it right in the prayer of Psalm 80, verse number 3, Turn us again, O Lord, or O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Deliverance from times of religious declension comes when God turns the heart. Again, that's verse number 37 of our portion of Scripture here. Hear me, praise Elijah. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Again, the point is well made and often made. All of our desires for church and for nation are nothing if we are not faithful in the place of prayer. It is God who must change the hearts of men, turning their hearts whereby he would shine his face upon them and they would then indeed be saved. You see, the people here, they desired rain, but they required reformation. They needed revival and renewal. And that is what the Lord is doing here on the scene in Mount Carmel. He is showing his power, his grace, and his mercy. It all begins, as we saw last time, with the confrontation of the people by Elijah. Verse number 21, how long halt ye between two opinions? Uh, This halting is that spiritual limping, a, a spiritual disability of compromise. It is likely the case that they thought they could adopt Baal worship under Ahab's rule and still keep some element of allegiance to Jehovah. This verse makes it clear that is not possible. There is no occasion for such religious compromise. And so verse number 21 ends with these words, And the people answered him, not a word. This is one of the occasions that we have to think to ourselves, Well, why did they not answer him a word? The question immediately comes to mind. And yet we're not really told the answer. There is, again, several, or there are several uh, ways in which they may answer it. It may be out of shame, embarrassment. Of course, silence could also be anger. How dare this man say anything to us? And they may respond in anger. But I think the likely situation is that they know they have nothing to defend themselves with. There's no justification for their compromise. I want you to think today of an imaginary situation. I want to give two men. And they're part of the company and they were called by Ahab, verse 20, to be gathered with the rest to Mount Carmel. And these are not real men, they're imaginary men. But I think it may help us to ground some of the things we're thinking about this morning, you can give them names. We'll, we'll, we'll call the father Simeon. And he, he, he's bringing along his, his son, his son perhaps early t- 20s, and his name is Ben. And they're, they're coming to Mount Carmel. They've been drawn from their, their village to this scene in Mount Carmel. And they're, they're, they're listening to the words of Elijah. And I can imagine this son saying to his father, you know, you've lived through these years. Perhaps the father's in his early 50s. And he's, he's lived through years of progressive compromise. Now it's the time of Baal. And for the last three years, 
The father's been struggling to make a living. The rains have stopped and things have been difficult. And Elijah calls out and says, how long halt between two opinions? And again, I'm speculating, but I wonder, did Ben look his father in the eye and say to his father, is that true of you? Is that a fair description of your religious practice in the past years? And the father answered him, not a word. You see, the reality of that situation ought to help us today in a similar way. If our children look us in the eye and say, we, you, you, know, you, you come to church, you seem to have some interest in religion, but is your heart dominated by those things that are not of God? You, you seem to love things more than the Lord. You, you get more excited by the things of this world than you do the things of God. You, you can't wait to get to this place or that place. But when it comes to church, there's just this dragging of your feet. Do you halt between two opinions, Dad? Mom, do you halt between two opinions? And they answered not a word. You see, there is no defense for religious compromise. We cannot serve Jehovah and Baal. If Christ be God, if Christ be the only Savior of sinners, then in the language of verse 21, then follow him. Follow him fully, wholeheartedly, like Caleb, with your whole heart, follow the Lord. That's the challenge that comes to the people. But as that challenge, as they're confronted by this situation, we then see the narrative continues to the point in verse number 39 when the people are convinced. They've been confronted, and yet you get to verse number 39, and it says, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is the God's. Again, I imagine our, our, our two men together, father and son, and in unison they say these words, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. Now, we must be honest here. We must acknowledge that it isn't clear as to the depth of the convictions expressed here. Clearly, there is an intellectual acknowledgement that Jehovah is God. What else could they say? Look what Beal did. <laughs> What else are they going to say? The Lord, he is God. And so there is that intellectual acknowledgement. Is it permanent? Hard to say, but certainly subsequent generations fall back into the same old idolatrous practices. They say he is the God. But do they follow? Do they worship? Do they serve? It's hard to know. One of the things I've read, certainly in some of the studies on 1 Kings 18, is some of the writers, they, again, please forgive the pun, they pour cold water upon this situation. They say, this is just a spurious intellectual exercise. They come, but things don't really get any better, and therefore this passage isn't much to talk about. 
I think that's not doing justice to the Word of God. Because whatever happens in the individual's future experience here, this is still an important step to true faith. Before a determination to follow God permanently and wholeheartedly, there must be this step, the Lord, He is the God. That has to be acknowledged before everything else follows in place. And so this is an important place. And I do believe, again, it's hard to to prove emphatically, I do believe that there are many in that company whose lives did change drastically from that point on. The remnant got larger that day because they came to know the Lord, He is God. And so I think we can analyze the portion carefully with profit with the desire that we would say the same as we leave today. We'd all leave here saying to one another, the Lord, he is God. That we join with Simeon and Ben and say, yes, the Lord, he is God. And we make that the profession of our faith. So what is it that persuades them of this? What convinces them that the Lord, he is the God? Well, again, you look at the narrative and the challenge has been issued. Verse number 23 and 24, Elijah gets the prophets and says, let them therefore give us two bullocks. He sets up this challenge. Two bullocks. And you folks, you can choose first. Build your altar, set up your wood, but no fire. The challenge must be fair. There can be no sense in which Ben, as this cocky young man, will say to the father, Ah, look, Elijah had a scheme and a plan here. He was, had an unfair advantage. No, this is all, all fair and above board. An opportunity for the people to suggest that Jehovah had some advantage. Man's heart is so deceitful. Honest. No fire beneath Matthew Henry points out really helpfully that Elijah in this action here prevents the lying wonders of Satan. Making sure there's no deception here. That the only conclusion can be that Jehovah is indeed the God. So what do the people recognize here? Well, first of all, we see the people see the power of the true God as opposed to the impotence of Baal. They see the power of the true God in opposition to the failure of Baal to do anything. Oh, yes, undoubtedly, they see a display of God's almighty power. Now, again, just this should be obvious. This is a real historical event. People are there. They witness this event. And in this event, they see a display of the power of God. They see, first of all, the nature of false religion. The nature of false religion. The gods of man's imagination always arise in connection with man's pride. You've got to see false religion as another way in which man shows his pride. Now, please be clear here. You've got to think through this. We've seen in our studies in the Sunday morning Bible class R that men by nature have an innate and natural knowledge of deity. They know there is a God and they hold, they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. They have that knowledge. But the act of man's pride is to say what this God is like. 
it's not so much that men are sitting in a room and deciding themselves, well, let's, let's concoct a new God. That's not it. They, they know there's a God. There's no need for them to do that step. They know there's a God. The issue is, what is that God like? That step is a step of man's pride. When they then begin to formulate in their own minds, this is what God must be like. And they begin to formulate a God of their own imagination in an act of human pride. But in their decision regarding what this God is like, they will then ensure that this God panders to man's ability. That the God they imagine is a God who acknowledges man's ability to do certain things and responds to certain things. And so, and please, you understand this. In every false religion, without exception, it includes man's effort being used to please that God. That's what makes the gospel distinct. At least one thing. Every false religion panders to man's ability to please their supposed God. You see, it is in pride that we believe that man is able to reach God. It's in pride that we believe that we know best how to approach God by works that we invent. It's in pride that we believe that God requires our efforts. You see, these, these Beale prophets, they, they epitomize all false religion. It's all based upon effort and work. If only we can do enough. Verse 26. They call on the name of Beale from morning even till evening. Verse 28. They cry aloud and cut themselves till the blood gushes out. Pride. Secondly, Activity. Again, we, in our pride, we believe, foolishly, as I've said already, that God will work in response to your great exertion. Why was Catholicism so powerful prior to the Reformation? Because those who did the most work got supposedly the greatest blessings. A false man-centered approach to God, whereby we do all the work and God is pleased to bless us for all of our works. So they cut themselves. And by the way, forbidden the law itself, but they cut themselves, they leap and they shout, and they do all they can to get their attention off their God. You know, just, just, this, this, I'm so cautious in this. We need to be aware in our own religious experience, in, in, in our church life, we need to be aware evangelical bealism. It's, it's, a, it's a real situation. I say you've got to be careful because we do believe that God blesses means. He's told us to pray and to fast and to ask and to keep on asking and to do these things whereby we get the ear of God and secure the answer of prayer and God blessing us in these things. But we've got to be careful. We've got to be aware of the thought that we can earn God's actions by our industrious labors. I don't want to ever say from this pulpit, if only you prayed more, we'd have revival by now. If only you'd fasted more, your family would be saved. 
If only you'd done this and this and this, then you'd have seen God answering your prayers. That language has a potential to crush and to oppress your spirits, whereby you live in a sense of your perpetual failures. And you embrace the spirit of Baalism. That if only I had done more, then things would be different. Now I say, you've got to be so careful. Because a prayerless spirit and an unwillingness to fast and to seek God is a surefire way to receive no blessing from God. But the issue is, oh, I only prayed for one hour. If I had prayed for two, my son would be saved. Oh, I, I, only, I only prayed for five hours. If it had been six hours, then, then blessing would have come. You get the point I'm making here? It's all our attitudes. It's not an unwillingness to exert ourselves, but it's the belief that if we exert ourselves enough, then we'll, we'll break the threshold and we'll secure the blessing of God. Elijah's work here is marked by profound simplicity. It's a heart of faith that secures the answer to prayer, not his extensive religious activity. So please get the spirit. Don't think for a second, Wednesday night, no point in going to prayer. Now the pastor said, it's not about our exertion. I didn't say that, folks. I didn't say that. We must pray. We must fast. We must call upon the Lord. That's what God says. But if you're doing that in the assumption that you're going to work up enough of that to then get your prayers answered, that's where your heart is not in the right place. Be faithful. Be earnest. And leave the answer to God's sovereign will and purposes. But you will not earn or work up revival in this church. You can't do it. Pray for it. Be earnest in your prayers. Believe your prayers. But be very careful about the subtlety of evangelical realism. You see, what you see in these false prophets and their exertion is that earnestness and sincerity has no proof of truth. You can be earnest and sincere. You can cut yourselves for your false religion but it does not prove the truth. Thirdly, mockery. These are just general thoughts regarding the nature of false religion. The worship of idols is a most ridiculous thing. It is kindness and justice to expose it to scorn. You see, in pagan religions, in the times of Baal, they would often engage in human activity. They, they come down, if you like, to, to man's level. And so Elijah, verse number 27 says, It came to pass at noon, Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud. And what follows is really some of the most sarcastic and ironic comments in the Scriptures as he pokes fun at the foolishness of the prophets of Baal. The, the King James is euphemistic in some of the language it uses here. Some of this is very, very coarse and blunt and to the point as he pokes fun at their gods. And some say, well, that's just Elijah. He's this hot-headed prophet. He's just one of these, he's uncouth. You know, a, a respectable member of society wouldn't behave like this. You know, a, a Christian pastor would not act in such a way as to poke fun at these false prophets. Oh, we have become so sanitized in this modern age of tolerance and uh, really just saying, well, everybody's got, they've got their own right to decide for themselves. Such a thought. Christ, how 
patient and tender our Savior was with the disciples. The disciples were marked by unbelief and slowness to understand the things that he said. And the Lord was so patient and gentle and kind towards them. But he mocked the Pharisees. You're like white sepulchers, all white and clean on the outside, but full of dead bones, defiled. Again, I'm speculating, but I can't imagine the people are kind of saying, did you hear what he just said to the Pharisees? You see, false religion should be exposed. The Lord sits in the heavens and shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. Why? Because they oppose the Lord's anointed. False religion undermines Christ and takes souls to hell. And it's our duty to say, this is false. And it's foolish. And it's completely and utterly pointless. You see, that is our responsibility. False religions come and we should see them as being entirely unproductive. The words are so wonderful. Verse number 26. But there was no voice. Nor any that answered. Of course there wasn't because there's no one there to hear. The whole thing is ringing with the folly of false religion. People may do this and that in the name of their false gods. But false gods don't do anything. One of the things that a false god cannot do is justly forgive sin. You know, you confront a cult or a false religion, a very simple scenario to say, I'm going to die in the next two minutes. How can I be right with God? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ answers that question. Only through Christ can a sinner be right with God in the days and the hours and the minutes before they die. Because it's no work. No effort. It's all been done. It's all been paid. Jesus and Jesus only. The one true and living God. No other name given among men whereby we must be saved. I wonder what Ben said to Simeon on that occasion. Again, we've got this picture in our minds of a young man coming into adulthood. And I wonder, as he say to his father, did you really worship this Baal? All these years you, you, you put your energy and your efforts into, into acknowledging Baal as being the true God. And look what the prophets are doing. They're all covering blood. What sort of God's this? I wonder. Well, they also saw the power of the true God. Again, there's a contrast here, isn't there? We're meant to see that. This difference between the two. You've got there verse number 29. Neither was their voice, nor any answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said, here's the contrast now. Things change when Elijah comes into center scene. And he gathers the people, get your eyes away from Baal. That's the point. Get your eyes away from Baal. Your eyes away from the world and set your eyes upon the Lord. That's what he's saying here. Come near me and see the power of God. You see, he shows them a true God who overcomes all obstacles. Numbers are no obstacle to God. 450 of Baal's prophets, only one of God's. But truth is not decided by the majority. One with God is a majority. One with God is truth. With God on Elijah's side. 
All natural hindrances are no obstacle to God. All the water is running around the trench. And I, I read deliberately, very slowly, when we got to verse number 38. All the water is flowing everywhere. No fire underneath. And when the fire of God comes down, not only does the fire of God consume the sacrifice, it consumes the wood, and not only the wood, but the stones and the dust. Everything is incinerated by the power of God. The point, this is no human fire. If you like, no fire caused by man, but only a fire with the intensity that comes from God. The power of the true God who responds, uh, as we pointed out already, in response to humble, God-centered prayer. There's a whole sermon again in verse number 36 and 37 regarding the prayers of Elijah. It's a God-centered prayer. The glory of God is his primary concern. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. That's our prayer. We should pray that every day. Let it be known today that thou art God. And show the people that thou art God, the glory of God, as our chief concern in this world in our prayers. But connected to that, there is a desire for the manifestation of the truth of God's word. That I am thy servant. That's not about Elijah's glory. But it's pointing out that he's the recipient of God's truth. He's the one who's revealed God's truth to the good of the people. That you would turn their heart back again. You know, you can take that prayer and modify that for your own prayer life today for the glory of God in his church and this nation. That God be known as God, that God's truth be exalted, and that people have their hearts turned to the Lord. Such prayer God answers. No leaping upon the altar. No cutting himself. You get the sense? He prayed it once and God heard because it was the mighty prayer of a man of God praying in faith. This true God also who fulfills and acts in accordance to his word. Again, you've got it there, verse number 36. I have done all these things at thy word. God does commend obedience in the accomplishment of his purposes. And then the fire falls and the people are convinced Wow, the power of God. Is that all it takes? Just fire to come down? Are they just convinced by a display of God's power? I don't believe so. God is doing more than, again, I use the word carefully, than merely or simply showing his power in sending fire. There are some reasons for that. I, I wonder, well, if it's just about God's power, why not challenge the true God to send rain? That's going to come, but that's what was needed. Just, just pray for Baal. You send rain, no rain. Jehovah, you send rain, rain comes out, and there you go. Now, there's more to it than that here, folks. There's more than just power being shown here. Why bother to rebuild an altar, verse number 30? Why repair the altar of the Lord's? Why then have a sacrifice upon that altar? Because the people were being encouraged to see the true God connects his work with sacrifice. 
Therefore, you'll see in your outline, initially the people see the power of God, they see the impotence of Baal, but secondly, they are also reminded of the justice and mercy of God. The event before us here is not a display of revival. The fire falling here is not an image of revival. If you want to see revival in this portion, you will see it more in the rain falling than in the fire falling. The fire following here is a foreshadowing of Calvary. And there are five things that point in that direction. First of all, the altar was built with 12 stones. We're told that, aren't we? Verse number 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. Again, the likely scenario here is that there was an ancient altar to Jehovah on Mount Carmel. It's in disrepair. And Elijah goes and rebuilds that altar. It's a very important symbol. Now, I'm going to argue very strongly that all this points to Calvary. And God has always shown his people that the way to acceptance with God is through sacrifice being offered. And Elijah is saying to the people, we've got to rebuild this. You've gone away from this. It's time to rebuild the altar, get back to first principles, and see the workings of God. How does God deal with his people by sacrifice offered for the people. Twelve stones for the twelve tribes. Points us forward to Christ, doesn't it? The good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. The one who loves the church and gives himself for it. It points to a particular, purposeful, redemptive process of God. Twelve stones for the twelve tribes. Secondly, the bullock was for a sacrifice. That word is used directly. Verse number 33, poured it on the burnt sacrifice. This is not just about displaying power. It's about pointing the people to sacrifice. And in the Bible, sacrifice are God word in their focus. Offered to God with respect to sin. They're about satisfying the justice of God's. Sacrifice. Thirdly, the bullock was also divided. Verse number 33. And cut the bullock in pieces. Uh, again, if you're, if you're versed in Old Testament history, you will see the importance of this. It takes us back to Genesis 15. And the covenant that God made with Abraham when the bullock was divided and God walked in the midst of those divided pieces. Covenant the language foreshadowing Christ being broken for us as the mediator of the new covenant, a divided sacrifice. Fourthly, in pointing us to Christ here, we see that the timing was the time of the evening sacrifice. I think Elijah is quite content for several hours. Again, I allow some speculation here. But if you like, Elijah's standing there with heaviness and soul, with righteous anger, seeing the folly of the prophets of Baal, but he's in no rush to stop them. On the one hand, the longer they continue, the more their folly is just demonstrated. But on the other hand, he's waiting for his moment. He's going to offer this sacrifice at the right time, verse number 36, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. 
there were, in the purpose of God, two lambs to be offered every day, day by day, continually. Exodus chapter 29, the one thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at evening. The timing is crucial. Mark chapter 15 tells us it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Nine o'clock in the morning, our time. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land. The sixth hour, twelve midday, and yet God sends darkness. Until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The ninth hour was the time of the evening sacrifice. Christ offered himself for our sins, showing the fulfillment of the evening sacrifice, whereby the people of God could know forgiveness of sins because a sacrifice was offered for them. Fifthly, the fire fell. We read that. The fire of the Lord fell. What does fire refer to in the scriptures? Well, we, we know that the fire, the fiery pillar, it certainly speaks of God's presence. The Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles in Acts chapter uh, 2, a sense of God's presence upon them in the Holy Spirit. But particularly, the presence of God in the fire it speaks of God's judgment. It is flaming swords that block the entrance to the Garden of Eden. It is in fire that Christ comes again in Second Thessalonians in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. It is God who's described in his justice as a consuming fire. The presence of God in his justice. And this, of course, is not the first time the fire has fallen. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 29. Sorry, Leviticus, Leviticus 9, 24. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 24. Now this in the institution of the tabernacle. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat. And when all the people saw, they shouted, and fell on their faces. I believe with all of my heart that the part of language in 1 Kings 18 is intended to encourage a reader to think back to this time. The fire falls. They fall on their faces and they cry out to God. The fire fell and consumed the burnt offering. We see the same, of course, in 1 Chronicles 21. Listen to this and the verse number 26. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. Ornan's threshing floor that became the place for the building of the temple. We saw that in our studies in David. And what happened when the temple is built? The fire falls upon the sacrifice. Tabernacle. Ornan's threshing floor the building of the temple, and now in 1 Kings 18, upon this altar in Mount Carmel, these occasions, the fire falls, the consistency of the theme is very, very clear. The fire falls upon the sacrifice and not the people. The holiness and justice of God is present in the fire, 
but the sacrifice is consumed and the people are forgiven. And so when the fire falls, they see the justice and mercy of God. The power of God, not separate from His justice and His mercy, but the power of God, emphasizing a display of His justice and His mercy. I wonder, I wonder again, would Simeon look to his son, and perhaps with tears, say, son, see that fire? That fire should have fallen on us. We deserved to be the very same as those stones that are burnt in the fire of God. But God directed his fire. He directed it to the altar and to the sacrifice and not to the people. This fire did not come down in some uncontrolled way. It came down upon the sacrifice. And so what do the people see? Well, I believe they see a foreshadowing of Calvary here. They see a revelation of the justice and mercy of God. Christ on that wooden altar hanging for the people was that sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who bears and takes away the sins of the world that is upon that cross that we see a demonstration of the power and the justice and the mercy of God. The fire of God's wrath falling upon his son. Consuming the son in those hours of darkness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But wonder of wonders, Christ consumes the fire for those for whom he dies. There can be no fear of fire for all who put their trust in Christ Jesus. He received the fire on your behalf, dear child of God. That's what they're seeing here. Are you today halting between two opinions? Do you find yourselves Monday through Saturday, you find yourself consumed with this world, you love this world, you love the things of this world, you get excited by this world, and yet you come to the house of God and you sing the hymns and you offer the prayers. And you know things aren't right, you, you know in the very core of your being things are not what they ought to be. That God is not really in your thoughts through the week and he's, he's at a distance from your minds. What is required? It is required of you that you get back to Calvary and see the power and glory of God on the cross of Christ Jesus. See there the Son of God. See there the God of heaven who has such mercy upon sinners that he sends the fire upon his Son and not upon the sinner. See, what does a halting church need? A halting church needs a fresh sight of the what and the why of Calvary. Why is today's church so compromised? Why is today's church so weak and so powerless in this world? Because they've denied the truth regarding Christ's atonement. Undermining the nature of the sacrifice of Christ. Undermining the nature of penal substitutionary atonement. These things denied in the liberal church. And now the people, they love the world. And they have a, a lip service for God. But they're halted between two opinions. 
And the same can be the case for ourselves if we do not guard our hearts carefully in these days. We must always find ourselves before the Son of God who died for us, who rose again for our justification that we indeed may see that if he is God, then follow him. He is God. Thus follow him. May your lives be wholeheartedly given to the Savior. May we see this fresh delight in these truths. Amen. Amen. Let's bow together, please, as we close in prayer. Eternal God, without exception, in this room, we all need to take ourselves back to what you accomplished on the cross. We all need to see the awfulness of our sin and the glory of your power and your justice and your mercy. We thank you, dear Father, again, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Oh God, may these historical truths Provoke within our soul the same response to the people of old. Jehovah, he is the God. May we affirm the same today. And may our lives be wholeheartedly changed for the honor and glory of your name. Encourage our hearts. Help us to call this day a delight. Bring us back together in your will as we come to study the word. Help us, O Lord, to glorify the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.